Uh, church family, let me, uh, as we come to the text today, uh, when, you, when you read through Scripture, you come to the end of all four of the Gospels, and you will see the same reality, which is Jesus dies and Jesus rises. And we know that after Jesus rises from the grave, uh, Scripture tells us He spends 40 days uh, resurrected, going about and appearing to various groups, teaching before He ascends into heaven. And we find in Acts chapter 1, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, He takes His disciples and He gives them a charge. He says, disciples, you're going to be my witnesses. One, I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. Don't do any of this until the Spirit comes because he's going to empower you, enable you, and you're going to be my witnesses, my testifiers. And you're going to not just witness to me here in Jerusalem as they're over on a, on a mountain overlooking Jerusalem. You're not just here, but in Judea, the whole region, and in Samaria, the region beyond, and, and to people that aren't like you, and maybe even there's some animosity with, and not just to Samaria, but to the ends of the earth. And then as you walk through the book of Acts, we see in chapter, chapter 1, they wait, the Holy Spirit comes. Chapter 2, they go out to the temple, they begin preaching. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, and, and as testimony to that faith in Christ and salvation are baptized that day in Acts 2. The early church is formed. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That would be the preaching of the Word, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, to fellowship, community as a body, and to prayer. And then we find, though, that as you walk through, everything is happening in Jerusalem until you come to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 follows Stephen's martyrdom, and it says a great persecution erupts throughout Jerusalem, at the center of which is Saul, who will later come to faith and become Paul. But this persecution erupts, and it makes this statement that the believers were scattered throughout the region, though the apostles remained in Jerusalem. So if you are one of those early believers and this persecution arises and all of a sudden you have to leave your home, your belongings, your job, your way of life, you're fleeing on the run, you're essentially a refugee living in a new place, facing the hardships of, of, of being poor, of reestablishing life, of poverty, of living in places that might not be so favorable to you, much less to the God you serve. And it's in the midst of of this period, in the midst of the early 40s in the first century, that one who did not believe but now believes that God has raised up as a pillar in his church writes this letter. And so I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of James. The book of James. We've been in the Old Testament. We've been all over the place in the Old Testament. Now we're going to go to the New Testament, the book of James. If you're unfamiliar, just go to the last book, Revelation, and hang a left about six books, and you'll be in James. James 1, 1. Listen with me, church family. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings, or literally joy, says James, a bondservant of the Lord God. Well, who's James? We'll give you real simple. There's about five James mentioned in the New Testament. There's only three that have any level of what we would say prominence. One would be James the Apostle, the brother of John, who dies in Acts chapter 12 by the sword at the hands of Herod. The other would be James the son of Alphaeus, or maybe you know him as James the Lesser. He appears four times. He's James the Lesser because he's the other James and the disciples, and he's not as important as James the son of Zebedee. So hence, James the Lesser. 
There's James the Lesser, but neither of those. James the Apostle dies too soon to write the book of James. James the Lesser's not prominent enough to, to write a letter and just say, James, and everybody know who he is. So who, who is this James? Well, the most prominent James in the New Testament is in fact the James who is the biological half-brother of Christ. See, obviously after Jesus is born, uh, Mary and Joseph, they will have other children, and James is one of those. James would have grown up as a younger brother to Jesus. We know from the Gospels during Jesus' lifetime, none of his siblings accepted what he said is true. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was a lunatic. They even came and tried to shut him up at one point. But then we know from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that as Jesus in these 40 days, as he's appearing, he makes the statement in there that, that he appeared to James. And you and I can only imagine the wonder of that moment. Because obviously James comes to confess Christ. And if there's the wonder of seeing your half-brother resurrected from the dead after being crucified on a cross, you can also wonder the sheer amazement of looking at your half-brother and no longer regarding him as your brother, but bowing your knee and declaring he is Lord, God, and King. And this is what happens in the life of James. James will go on. Uh, we, we believe he's likely married based on Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 9. Based on Galatians 1 and 2, we know that Paul knew James and that James was a pillar, the bedrock of the church in Jerusalem. In fact, it's James' testimony at the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 where what does it look like to really come to faith in Christ? And as Gentiles come to faith in Christ, what, what of the Old Testament law is binding on them? It's James that the Holy Spirit fills with the wisdom to address the issue. Tradition calls James, James the just. He's known for his holiness. He's known for his devotion to the Lord. He's known for his life of prayerfulness. In fact, the nickname of James, the writer here, is Camel Knees because he spent so much time physically on his knees in prayer, they became coarse. It's this James who says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word bondservant, we've seen it before. It's literally, the word is doulos. Now, bondservant sounds really nice. The word literally means slave. It describes one whose life and direction is completely owned and determined by another. It's, it's a term that when used in reference to God and, and Jesus Christ, it's a term when used there that references extreme humility and submission. Not only that, but it's a term ascribed to some of the greatest of the Old Testament saints, a term of, of honor as only, one could, only, as only God could flip a term upside down. Moses, David, Daniel, Amos, Jeremiah are all described as servants, as slaves of God. And though this is not the focus of our text today, let me just be clear, church family. There's only two writers in the New Testament who when they write their letters, only the only identifier they give to themselves are, is that of servant. Now, Paul will use servant, but he'll use some other things too. There's only two that just use servant, James and Jude, both biological half-brothers of Christ. And we need to be real clear today, church family, there is not one of us in this room, if the biological half-brothers of Christ can recognize that they have no unique special authority or place or sign just because they can claim a familial relation with Christ, then we better be careful in this room, church family. There is not one of us who is greater than another. We are all bowed at the foot of the cross. 
And we better walk with a humility and understand that, church family, when you come to faith in Christ, when I ask Jesus to save me, my rights to my life are done. I am bought at a price. This is what that word there. He writes to the 12 tribes, to those believers, those Jewish believers, those first Christians who are dispersed, who are literally scattered, who are are living and facing a life of hardship, uh, and as we'll see, of suffering. And he writes to them in the midst of what will be hard circumstances, and he says greetings, or literally the word is joy. Writes believers, joy, and then he says this. Consider it or reckon it pure, true, great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing endurance, and let, allow, submit to endurance, give it its perfect result so that you may be perfect, mature, complete, lacking in nothing." He writes this group of believers, and the first thing right off the bat, he says, joy to you, greetings, joy. Then he says, consider it joy, consider. Consider, it's a word, church family, which means to reckon. It's a verb of thought rather than a verb of emotion. It's the idea of of, of literally the picture of someone leading their thoughts. It's someone engaging in an intellectual process. Now, by intellectual, I don't mean academic. What I mean is there is actual willful thought placed to process through something and lead one's thoughts to a true conclusion, as opposed to allowing my thoughts to be led not by proper thinking, but by the whims of whatever I feel and whatever thought may pop into my mind at this moment or next. It's a, it's a verb that James used, and he uses it in the most urgent and passionate way you can convey a command in the Greek language. So when he says, consider it great joy, this is not a suggestion, and it's not even just simply a command. There is an urgency to say to recognize, church family, consider our lives depend on it. Consider, take your thoughts, lead them, reckon them to consider great joy when you encounter trials of various kind. It's a word, church family, that's throughout Scripture, a key word. Paul considered his trial before Agrippa an opportunity to witness. Abraham considered God asking him to sacrifice Isaac and and God calling him to, to have a son with Sarah at the age of 100 as something that only God could do. Moses considered suffering as an Israelite was better than indulging in the riches of the Egyptians. Paul considered all things lost in view of the surpassing worth of Christ. Christ considered being fully God, not as something to lord over us in His incarnation, but humbled Himself to the point of death. Church family, it's a word with which we are deeply familiar with if you've been here in the last year because it appears in nearly every passage in the book of Philippians. Consider, but what are we to consider? What are we to lead our thoughts to? We're to consider it all joy, your Bible may say, or, or great joy. That word all is, is used in such a way that it's not describing consider everything that could happen to you, joy. It's, no, it's describing the type of joy. Don't just consider it joy, but great joy, pure joy, real joy. Consider it joy when you encounter trials of various kind. Well, trials there is a unique word. I don't know what pops into your mind, but it's a unique word that carries two, two ideas. 
One is that of testing, something that, that, puts, uh, that puts something to the test to expose what's really there, to see how genuine or true it is. But it equally carries this other idea of temptation. If this is trying to expose what is there that is good, this, this idea of temptation is something is trying to pull and entice and woo you or woo one to something that is wrong. It says when you encounter trials of various kinds, various, it's an interesting reality. He doesn't say when you encounter this kind of trial or that. He says when you encounter various kinds of trials for him, for James, for what they are facing in their situation, various would have included uh, favoritism for the rich over the poor. It would have been economic poverty. It would have been financial abuse. It would have been blasphemy of the Lord by the politically powerful. It would have been the exploitation of workers by, by their bosses. These are the kinds of various trials they would be facing for us. Some of those things don't ring too far from the truth of things we see in our society. For us, trials of various kind could be going to the doctor with a headache only to find a few scans later that there's a mass and you're hearing the word cancer. Trial could be standing for the Lord in, in your job and all of a sudden walking in one day to find the HR director hands you a pink slip. Trials could be being placed in class sitting next to the one person who makes your life more miserable than another. Trials could be sleep deprivation and tireless nights with children and crying out to the Lord for just one night of sleep and it not seeming to happen. Trials could be long, could be short. When the word various appears, it could be something that tests, it could be something that tempts. Trials of various kinds. And notice what he says, trials of various kinds, not just there, but when you encounter, when you encounter, when would seem to imply church family, it's not a matter of if we encounter trials of various kinds, but only a matter of time. When you encounter, and that word encounter is an interesting little word because what it really means is it's the idea uh, to stumble into something dangerous, to stumble into something bad by sheer accident, something that's un unexpected. In fact, it's the same word when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan that the man who leaves Jerusalem walking to Jericho, who woke up that day ready to go on a road trip, he would stumble without expectation into being mugged by robbers and left for dead on the side of the road. When you encounter trials of various kind, what does he say? Reckon it great joy. Joy. Reckon it great joy. He says, he says, church family, when you're walking, when you're going through life, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, here is this trial. Here is this thing that afflicts your life. Here is this thing in which maybe you, you are tempted and enticed. Here is this thing which seems to come out of nowhere. You're not seeking it, which by the way, church family, Scripture never says we should seek suffering. You're crazy if you seek suffering doesn't say we're to seek suffering. It also seems to imply that this is not trial that comes as a result because we've done something knowingly foolish and wrong. Now understand the Lord's grace is there too, but specifically what we're looking at is I'm walking along, I'm seeking to live right and righteously, and all of a sudden trial comes. 
And what is natural for us, what is natural for any human being, trial comes and all of a sudden frustration. Why is this happening? Confusion. God, why would you let this happen to me? Angst, anger, how could you allow this to happen to me? Doubt, well, is God really who he says he is? There's a wider range of things that come, yet what James says is consider it joy. Do not allow the normal emotion that drives you to lead your thoughts. Instead, you lead your thoughts to what is true, and what is true is you consider these trials great joy. Well, what is joy? What, what, is, what is the term there? I'll give you a wide range, church family. Joy is what flows out of a right relationship with God. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which means you and I can't produce joy. It's the Holy Spirit who gives joy. It is a delight and gladness of spirit, which is produced by the Holy Spirit within those rightly related to God by grace through faith and experienced by those who will walk in the Spirit. Joy is tied to God's person, His plan, who He is and what He does, being known and realized. It enables us as God's people to enjoy what God gives. It is different from pleasure. And you say, well, pastor, how is joy different from pleasure? I mean, uh, when, when I, when I, uh, I'm, I'm expecting to go to I'm expecting to go to the A&M and Alabama game this year and experience joy as A&M wins. Well, hold your boat there a little bit, but we use joy interchangeably in English, but the reality is in Greek, there's a word for joy and there is a word for pleasure. They're two different words. That's how I know it's not the same, because there is a word to describe pleasure, that emotion that you feel. That's why joy doesn't refer primarily to an emotion, but to a state of being, a way of living, a way of thinking. And it's not positive or optimistic thinking. What he's telling them here is not, as you encounter trials, be optimistic. See the glass is half full rather than half empty. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you consider it joy. You consider it joy. Why? Not just because you're encountering a trial, but because of what you know. Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, knowing by the way, knowing there is present tense, which means you and I will have to constantly come back and re-know what this says, because it's easy to forget. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The testing. The testing. The, the idea, it's, it's the word used to describe the process in which you take a precious metal or a precious jewel and you superheat it to a liquid form. And as you superheat it to a liquid form, the impurities rise to the surface and you scrape them off and what you are left with is a jewel or a piece of gold or silver that is far more beautiful and shiny and splendorous. It's the idea of taking a, a weapon of, of metal, of iron, of steel, and of superheating it to where it's hot and glowing and pounding and pounding on the metal so that you purge the metal of weakness and impurity so that that sword is no, no longer brittle, but it, it not only shines with a fresh coat, but it is strong, it is whole, it is sound. He says, you you know that the testing of your faith, your faith, that confident assurance of that which is absolutely true, though unseen, 
as your faith is placed in the heat, as it is superheated, as you experience the discomfort of being melted so impurities rise to the surface, what you need to know, church family, James writes, what you need to know is that as, as faith is placed under the crucible, endurance is produced. Endurance. It's a word that means to remain under. It's not the idea of some kind of a morbid passivity. Instead, it speaks to a, a power and inner fortitude to steadfastly withstand hardship, to hold out in the face of stress, to bear under great difficulty. The ability to stand firm, to stay in place, to carry great loads for a prolonged period of time without faltering in weakness or fear. It says, knowing, church family, what you're to count joy is not that you're facing trials, but it's as you face those trials, as you face those unexpected things that bring your faith into the crucible, what you are to count joy, to consider great joy is, is knowing that those trials are not random, they are not by chance, what for you feels by chance, what for, for us may be experienced unfairly, what, what in all of those things, when your faith is tested and stretched, it produces endurance. Now, this is not as hard of a concept as, as maybe I fear I've made it sound. This is the basis for any kind of athletic training. It's the basis for any kind of athletic training. You go in the weight room, you put your weight, you put your muscle, whatever muscle you're working, you put it under what? Stress. You don't get stronger by lifting light weight. If you can already lift it without any effort, you're not going to get any stronger. The key to getting stronger in the weight room is to continually move the weight up where your muscles remain under stress. Or maybe put this way, uh, when I played football in high school, we played what I have affectionately nicknamed Iron Man football. I call it that because uh, sometimes on our 11-man football team, there were 17 players by the end of the season, which meant for about eight or nine of us, we played every snap of the game. And our coach would all the time uh, mess with us and he'd say, look, we're not the strongest, we're not the fastest, but we will absolutely be in the best shape because it's the only shot we got to win. And his point was this, every team we played had twice as many players as us. They could sub people in and out. I remember watching uh, students in high school playing for these great big high schools and the kid goes in, he runs his route, he catches his pass, and then he's tapping his helmet, take me out, coach, I need a breather. I'm going, this is weak man's football, man. I ran that 40-yard route, caught the pass, lined up, did another one, and then when we fumbled the ball, turned around and played defense. But here's the deal. You don't get prepared for something like that by watching film. You go out in this miserable heat, and you wear all your pads, and you line up on that field, and after you've practiced for two hours, you run sprints to challenge and push your body to gain endurance. The same principle, and you don't have to be an athlete for any of that, that's just easy examples, the same principle is true for our faith. When our faith comes under moments of trial, moments that cause doubt, moments that bring frustration, moments that don't seem to make sense, where in those moments, if you think of us as a tree, we have to dig the roots deeper and deeper into the soil to stretch for the water. When those moments come, God is at work. He is producing endurance, and that is only part of why we consider it a joy. Because the end goal is not just to have endurance. Look back with me, look at verse four. The end goal is not just to be endurance, to have endurance. Look what he says, and let, 
Let's just pause there for a second. And let, easy to look over. By the way, in the Greek, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. Hey, it's a good idea. If you're going to undergo the trial and endurance is going to, you know, just let, let endurance. It's a command, church family. You and I are to allow endurance, allow the endurance that is being produced to carry out its work. Allow, or maybe put it this way, submit to the work of endurance. Allow it to have its perfect work. You see, the goal is not just endurance, but there is a work that endurance is doing, that endurance is producing in our lives. Well, what is that work? So that you may be perfect. The idea of being mature without defect, that you may be complete, the picture of something that is whole, that is structurally sound, that is filled with integrity, so that you may be mature, complete, lacking nothing. Or let me maybe put it another way for us, church family, as you face trials of various kinds, as you face hardship and suffering, as you face temptation, as you face things that are, that are putting you under the sun, that are turning up the heat, that are trying your faith, you count it joy because there is something that is taking place. Your faith is being stretched. Endurance is being, uh, being produced. The ability to stand firm in the face of trial is growing your faith. And here's what you have joy about, because the end result, if you will submit and allow what endurance is doing, if you submit, you will be made spiritually mature. Church family, we, we, we need to understand what Scripture is exceedingly clear on when, when Romans chapter 8 says, God causes all things to work together for good. Well, what is that good? Well, it's immediately answered in Romans 8, 29. When he, said, when he talks about that those whom he predestined, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of Jesus. When you came to faith in Christ, when little five-and-a-half-year-old Wes said, Jesus, I am a sinner. You, in fact, are God. I need you to save me. The goal of that salvation is not simply to save me from the punishment of my sin. No, I need to be saved from the punishment of my sin because the goal of that salvation is to reconcile me, to restore me to a right relationship with God, the relationship you, that we were made for, a relationship in which God's purpose in His salvation is to make us look like Christ. And if we think that God's salvation and the purpose of His salvation is simply to give me a get-out-of-hell-free card so that then I can kind of live the life that I want to live, uh, but, but making sure that I don't stray too far and I, and I give God credit, that's not God's purpose. And if that's what we think God's purpose is for salvation, we need to have our thinking corrected by Scripture. God's purpose of salvation is to make us look like Jesus. And the means by which he makes us look like Jesus is the same means that he worked in Christ's life. It's a little passage in Hebrews 5, speaking about Jesus in his time on earth, would offer prayers, cries with, with great passion. And it says this, that he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, it doesn't mean he learned obedience in terms of he was disobedient. What it means is that the way that obedience was played out in his life, the way that God's plan for the incarnation of Christ, the way that Jesus fulfilled the will of God was through what he suffered. 
The way of God to shape you and I is not to call us to Christ, prop our feet up, give us manicures and pedicures, and feed us bonbons all day. But it will be to allow us, as we follow Him, to encounter trials of various kinds. And as we encounter those trials, we have an option. We, consider them, we can consider them frustrations. We can consider them annoyances. We consider them as reasons for question. We can consider all those things. Or we can do and see through the trial to God's purpose in all of it, which is to conform us to the image of His Son, that we may be mature and complete. Church family, there is no path to maturity that does not come with trial under the sovereign control of the Lord. Romans chapter 5 says it this way, Therefore, since we have peace with God, having been justified by faith, in whom we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace. It says this, and not only this, but we exult, we take joy, we rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The only way you and I can walk into maturity in Christ is to face trials and count them joy. Because the presence of trial does not necessarily mean we're going to mature. This is the reason for the commands. You and I can face trial and not consider them joy. We can consider them frustrations, annoyances, things to be escaped. We can consider them opportunities to question and doubt the Lord. We can be faced with a trial and endlessly look and pray for any way out of what that trial is and instead of submitting and allowing that trial to produce endurance and allowing endurance to produce its effect. And by the way, church family, when it says consider it joy, what's implied in that is not that you and I have to feel good about trial, not that we have to like trial. Not that we have to put a fake smile on our face as we're going through the hardest thing we've faced in life and go, man, life is great. That is not what it's saying. It's not saying to deny the reality of what we feel emotionally from it, but it's to say in the face of that as we authentically take those things to the throne of Christ, that with joy we submit to the work and will of the Father with which He does in our lives. Could it be, church family, that because we live in a society where we can so easily escape hardship and find other things of pleasure to, to feed on and feast on, could it be that the reason we are not more mature, could it be that the reason at times the American church seems so juvenile is because we refuse to ever count the trials God allows in our life as joy and submit to their work? Trials are going to come, church family. The question for us is, as they come, what will we do? Will we consider them joy? And if we're going to consider them joy, understand what this means with me for a moment. It means something active. You and I will never drift into thinking a trial is joyful. It will take deliberate thinking empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives within to take captive our thoughts, to set our minds on Christ and the things above not in neglect of our emotion, not in denial of our emotion. 
We take our emotion to the Lord. We cry out. We weep before his throne. We learn like Jesus to pray with agony in our heart. Father, uh, Father, take this cup from me if there be any way. But then we learn to lead our thoughts to the place where we say, but not my will, yours be done for your joy. It's going to take active thought. Means we're going to have to walk not by what we feel, but why we know to be true, faith. It's going to demand meditation on his word. If we're going to have to walk by what is true, we're going to have to remember what is true. We're going to have to remember that God does not allow trial because he's trying to play with us or toy with us or pick us or anything like that any more than my coaches back in the day would push us to run one more sprint or do one more thing. They weren't trying to harm us. They were trying to prepare us for what we were called and purpose to do. It says in Lamentations 3, I'd encourage you, if you've never really read in Lamentations, to read Lamentations 3. It describes uh, Jeremiah, and he describes how beat down and afflicted the trials that he is facing. If you read the first half of the chapter, it is a rough, rough word. But then he says this, in the midst of complete and total hopelessness, he makes this statement. He says, "The Lord, this is what I recall to my mind. This is what I consider. This is what I remember. And this is why I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. And then it says, for if he causes grief, then God will have compassion according to his abundant, steadfast, loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. You see, church family, it's passages like that. If we're going to consider our thoughts, if we're going to consider it and count it joy, we will have to know his word. We will have to sit. The place in which we will have to stand is his word, taking captive to our thoughts and understand we've got to do it because the It's a spiritual battle to consider trial joy. Is that not true when trial comes along unexpectedly? That just as that trial itself is there, all of a sudden you start to hear the whispers. If God really loves you, why would he allow you to face this? If God was really all-powerful and in control, why would he allow this thing to afflict your life? Does God really even pray and pay attention to your prayers? Because it seems like what you're praying for, he just seems silent and and not answering. All of a sudden, the whispers of the enemy to doubt and to question our God. And by the way, church family, listen, I'm not immune. When we got hit with COVID two months ago, that trial, as we all ultimately came down with it, That trial, as we attempted while being at the height of our sickness to keep Jesse from having to go to the ER, that trial exposed and brought some impurities in my faith to the surface. Where these same whispers were there, where these same doubts, and while there were moments where I trusted well, oh my goodness, have there been some even more moments where some things were exposed that I've had to confess before the Lord areas of of control and fear that were brought to the surface that were easily looked past when everything is great. But our weaknesses, if I'm going to walk with Him, it's going to mean engaging proactively, considering all things joy. But church family, if we're going to submit, if we're going to allow it, understand what that's going to mean. It's going to mean you and I are going to face trials and hardships in which we will have to make an active choice to submit to the hardship. 
It means there are going to be trials that we face out of nowhere where we cry out for deliverance and God is not slow and God is not refusing not to hear, but where God calls us to bear up, to allow it to work, where we're going to have to resist the urge to use worldly means to take the way out. Imagine for these believers as they're facing bosses who are defrauding them. You can think of how they could have conversations. Hey, he's defrauding you. He's defrauding you. He's not paying you. What if we all get together? There's more of us than him. Let's go riot and burn his place to the ground. But yet that action would not look like that of Christ. Instead, they get to their knees, and in all joy, they submit to what they are facing. They go about the proper channels. They pray for God's movement. They walk in those ways. Church family, understand it is so easy to find our way out of hardship. If you've got money, you can shop yourself to death. If someone's coming attacking you, you can slander back. We can busy ourselves with this, that, and the other. But understand, if we're going to submit to endurance, it's going to mean a patient submission in the midst of hardship. It's going to be a a patient enduring in the midst of temptation. It may mean we're walking with the Lord well, and this temptation comes out of nowhere. Where is this coming from? And we have to daily submit and rest. It's going to demand walking in an intimate trust. Listen, church family, what what I fear is you hear this passage and you go, man, I'm facing this trial. Here's an open door to get out of the trial. Well, I shouldn't. Instead, I should just keep myself suffering and misery even more. Pastor, pastor said that, that I should rejoice in all trials, so this unbelievable headache I've got, I just need to endure it rather than taking a couple Advil. You and I, considering all things joy and submitting to trials, submitting to endurance, it demands us walk intimately with God. There are going to be some trials that you can take away out that's not of the Lord, and you're going to have to stay and submit. There's going to be some trials you cry for a way out, like the man on the roof in the flood who said, God, deliver me, and he's going to send a helicopter and a boat and a raft. And the primary way you're going to know what the Lord's doing is we have to walk with the Lord. Sometimes the Lord will say, flee the city persecuting you. Sometimes the Lord will say, stand up in trial and witness and bear witness for me. It demands an intimate walk and trust with the Lord, walking with Him intimately, walking with His body corporately. It's going to be remembering and desiring His work. Church family, at the end of the day, the reason we can consider trial joy is because we ought to earnestly desire His work, His work wherein He conforms us to the image of His Son. Years ago, uh, when I was a youth pastor, we, uh, you know, summer, we'd take our kids to camp, and I would have the opportunity to take our high school students out to Glorieta, New Mexico, every July, which was awesome, because we left horrible weather, and we got out of that bus, and it was 60, 50 degrees in the mountains. It was great. But as a youth pastor going to camp, you just earnestly are praying for God to move, for God to work, for, for, for God to break through the lives of so many students who's, who many of their hearts are, are hard against Him. And, and you're praying that as God moves, that God would also move amongst the group, that there would be a spirit rise up in the group, that they would connect, that, that God would work in ways. And so we, we took our students to camp that year. 
And on the last full day of camp, there was a hike. There is a lookout point. It's a five-mile hike. It's about a 3,000-foot elevation change. It's a lookout point that overlooks Glorietta. Glorietta is about 7,000 feet at, at, at base camp. This point's a little over 10,000. Glorietta is nestled in the, kind of this valley surrounded by some mountains. And so we decided we were going to go hike it. And I did everything I could to discourage as many students from going as possible. And 44 students decided to go. That's like two-thirds of our group. So we begin to go on this, on this hike. I was the first on the trailhead somewhere in between, I think, a, a 10.30 and 11. We're planning to be back somewhere around 5. And on this hike, as we're walking, there is, there's a sign that says the trail is this way, but then we don't see anything, and then there's a gate with a trail that goes like that. So two of my guys who'd been on the previous year and we'd done a different trail said, hey, I think we're on the wrong trail. And I said, I think we might be too, but we're already like three miles in and this trail ultimately gets there. So let's just, let's just stay, we're, we're on, we'll get there, it'll just be a little longer. A little longer was a lot longer. <laughs> it was, uh, I'm not exaggerating, it was about four miles of this kind of incline with no, no pauses. You are trapped in the trees. You can't see where you're at. All of a sudden, you're walking with feet going either way, and, and I hear all the complaints. Oh, just complaining, 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 complaining. We do get to the lookout point, to the top of the mountain. We get there about 4 o'clock, 4.30. Hey, here's the path. It's clear. We'll just truck it right back. Maybe we'll all get back in time for dinner only. All of a sudden, I've got students who are complaining of dizziness. I've got an adult leader whose knee has locked out and cannot walk even one mile per hour. So we start sending groups down in waves. We've got walkie-talkies. Of course, one of the groups on the ways down, they've got the pastor's daughter who, hey, uh, pastor's daughter is... Uh, She's, she's a little woozy. Hey, she's really dizzy. Hey, she's slurring her words. Hey, I'm carrying her, and I'm just praying, Lord, please don't let the pastor's daughter die, or I will <laughs> never work in church again. We got off. I was the last person off the trailhead at 9.30 that night. We had kids in ice baths. Uh, we missed evening worship. We missed that final church group time. And I'll be honest, I went to bed very devastated because of what was intended to be something fun and good seemed to have just ruined the end. In fact, the complaints were so bad, I had two seniors walk up and they said, hey, we, we just wanted to say thank you because that was actually really cool and we just don't want you to feel bad. And I, I said, well, thanks. Here's why I tell this story as it relates to trials. The next day I said, we're going to have a church group time before we get back on the bus for our drive back. And I said, well, students, what did, what did God teach you this week? And nearly every testimony was as all the students went to bed that night, how they reflected about how hard that hike was, but how we got to the end goal, how the Lord took care of us, how it was easier to walk that path when they did it together as a community, how they learned to encourage. All of a sudden, all these things you're praying for, they start to say, we learned all of this through the hike that we did complain about the whole time. We didn't consider it joy, but it was the trial of what affectionately became known as the death hike 
that brought an answer to prayer for students to understand some things about what it looks like to follow the Lord. Church family, we will face trial. It's not a matter of if, it's only when. And when we do, we will be left with a choice. Will we complain the whole pathway through, or will we lead our thoughts and consider it joy? Because our God is not a God who allows things to happen by chance, but who is actively working through that trial to bring you and I not to a great lookout point on a mountain, but to bring you and I into complete and total maturity and perfection in which we will see Him face to face for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You are in control. It does not mean that every trial comes from You, but it does mean that everything that touches our life at, at least has to be allowed by You. There's nothing that touches that You are not keenly aware of, and Lord, may we be a people especially as we continue to watch and and see our culture move more and more hostile to you, much like the original readers of this letter would have been living. God, may we be a people who are marked by an extreme, supernatural, and great joy. Not because suffering is great, not because suffering is awesome, but, Father, because you are good and you are in control and you are working in more than anything, Lord, in our lives. May it be that we desire to know you, to be like you, to glorify your name. God, you are working from eternity for eternity. Oh, Lord, may we be a people who consider it joy. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.